So as we continue to move through Romans 8 during the season of Lent and look together at Paul's phenomenal description of the ministry of Jesus Christ, last week we talked about suffering and hope and the way in which those two things characterize our journey in the the midst of that gap between what we have and, and what we want. But today we're going to look at the role of prayer in the face of that in-betweenness as Paul continues to talk about it in just two verses. As he speaks of prayer, he speaks of the, the Holy Spirit's presence in our prayers is what strengthens us in the midst of that weakness that we experience in between. So let's look at verses 26 and 27 in chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, we do not know how to pray as we ought. Sometimes we don't know what to pray. But in our ignorance and in our confusion, what we know is that nevertheless, you are with us and we are with you. So help us to rest in that place today and every day. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to confess that one of the more confounding things in my life, the life of faith that I've lived, is the role of prayer in that journey of faith, the question of prayer. What is it? Why should we do it? What difference does it make? Jesus himself in his Sermon on the Mount kind of deals with some of these conflicting feelings and views of prayer when on the one hand, he says, go and pray in your closet, pray in private, pray in secret so that your father who sees in secret and hears in secret will hear you. Don't, don't make a show of it all. He says, uh, don't, don't heap up empty phrases in public. He seems to encourage something that's, that's private and, and almost invisible. But on the other hand, later in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And so there's a sense in which faith does have a public aspect as, and prayer as well. I found some resonance in the line that Wendell Berry uses in his novel, Jaber Crow, where his title character is talking about prayer. And Jaber Crow is actually the barber in this small community in Kentucky that Berry writes about, a fictional community. But Jaber Crow's the barber, but he's actually really the pastor. The pastors that come through this community are just kind of sent there and can't wait to get out. But Jaber lives there and ministers to this community without ever being called pastor. He effectively functions as pastor in, in this community. And, and he's talking about prayer at, at one point, and, and he says, seems to me the only prayer that needs to be prayed is thy will be done. And then after a pause says, but then there's really not much need to do that either. 
Because God's will is what God will effect. Even that prayer, in other words, is not something that there's much need to pray. Let God be God, in other words, because what God wants is what God will make happen. But there's a kind of fatalism in that that I can't abide either. In that I know that something happens when I pray. Whether I ask for anything or not, or whether I get what I ask for or not, something happens in the actual struggle of prayer. I acknowledge myself to be in the presence of God, and I try to understand the thoughts of God, but like the psalmist in Psalm 139, in the latter part of that psalm that I didn't read this morning, the psalmist says, How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end, and I'm still with you. I come to the end of the process of prayer. I come to the end of trying to know you, God. I come to the end of knowing that you are God and that I am not God, but even in that difference, that seeming inaccessibility and incomprehensibility that I experience in the midst of that, says the psalmist, I am still with you. And I think this is what Paul is getting at in our text today in in Romans 8. In essence, prayer is not a transaction for Paul, where if we do it right, we get something in return. Prayer is relationship with God, where what we do and how we do it is not the primary issue at all. But God being God and me being me, And both of us in one another's presence is what prayer is about, is what is primarily at issue. Paul says we all know we don't know how to pray as we ought. Who hasn't experienced that? Who hasn't experienced the struggle of prayer, the frustration of prayer, trying to know what to pray and when to pray it? We all know that sense of how feeble our prayers seem. Shakespeare has his character Claudius, King Claudius and Hamlet say this as he's trying to pray, my words fly up, my thoughts remain below, words without thoughts never to heaven go. It's an exposition on Jesus' words, I think, about heaping up empty phrases and how when prayers feel like that, they they ultimately don't seem to get much past the top of our head, let alone ascend to the heights of of where we might imagine God to be. But our weakness, our feebleness in prayer is not some malady that we need to remedy. It's actually, as Paul says, an opportunity for God to be God. And so he says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. The Spirit connects us with God in a way that our words alone can never accomplish. 
as you know, I've been reading and trying to share passages from Karl Barth's uh, letter to the Romans. It's a phenomenal book, but I, it's like the more I read from it, the more I kind of go, wow, that's heavy and <laughs> realize that not much of it ever gets past my mouth into your ears. And yet there's a word that he uses in his translation of this text that I want to point out today. And, and I don't know what the German word is, but the way the English translators translated it is the word forestall instead of the word helps. And the spirit forestalls our infirmities. And, and that word forestall is kind of an old word, but it's essentially the spirit steps in and does something for us and overrides and makes unnecessary our efforts. The spirit steps in. The spirit actually takes over somehow in prayer making our prayers effective, making our prayers communicate, that the Spirit makes connection with God that our struggle can never achieve, and the Spirit is God if we believe in Trinity, that God actually does something to reach out to us in prayer that creates the connection. The Spirit, therefore, is the great unifier of the Trinity and knows our mind and knows the holy divine mind and, and brings the two of those things together somehow. It's the same idea that we hear when Paul articulated it earlier in Romans in chapter 8 and verse 16 when he says, that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There, is a sense that prayer is communion. Not just our attempts to get God's attention, but the experience of relationship, that we don't just send up prayers. God, by the Spirit, prays in us and for us. And that's mind-boggling. It's a little strange, actually. And it's pretty much unexplainable and to quote Wendell Berry again, explain it how you will, but all you will explain is your explanation. It's hard to grasp and our explanations never fully capture it. The best I can do is the picture that the psalmist gives us in Psalm 131. It's the picture of relationship. When the psalmist says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. No transaction is taking place as that child sits on the lap of his or her mother, not needing anything, but just simply enjoying the presence of his or her parent. I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. There's neither feeding nor being fed that's going on. Simply one another's presence, sharing the same place, with the same mind, having the same love, simply relating because we belong to one another. 
And so in closing, I return to the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' response to the disciples' question, teach us to pray, is the Lord's Prayer. And so we pray it because Jesus says there's something in this prayer that teaches you about prayer. And I mentioned earlier the, the petition of this prayer, thy will be done. I have a good friend named David Merriweather. He's a pastor in San Antonio, Texas. And David said something once about this petition that I've never forgotten. He said, you know, he asked the question, why do we pause after thy will be done? And we, you know, because when we say the prayer together, we often pause, you know, thy kingdom come, pause, thy will be done, pause, on earth as it is in heaven. He says, we need to put those, those two phrases together, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the full sense of what the coming of the kingdom means. So why do we pause there, he said. And so it reminds us that what that petition is all about is simply this. Put it all together, Lord. Because it's hard for us to grasp. Put it all together. Bring about the cohesion. Bring about the integration. Bring about the congruence. Bring about the reconciliation that is effected when your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Unite our prayers to you. Be with us in the struggle between this world and the next that causes our groans. Unite our prayers to your prayers and make us one in what we want and what you want. And so let us rest in that place that we were created to occupy and find that we have more than enough room in your heart. Let's pray. Put the pieces together for us, Lord. Help us to hear your echo of our own groans and also to take in and say back to you your assurance that nothing can separate us from you. And let us rest in that place. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.